Good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be together again. And uh, as a church, we are in the middle of a series entitled, What Happens When Jesus Comes? So we have already seen what happens when Jesus comes to dinner, that wonderful story of Jesus going for dinner with Levi, the tax collector. We also saw in week two that what happens when Jesus comes to a wedding feast and turns water into wine, kind of my personal favorite story. I mean, who wouldn't want a friend like that, right? Turning water into wine. And then last week we heard from Ken about this amazing encounter, Saul from Tarsus meeting up with Jesus on the road to Damascus and everything changed after that. So this morning I want us to consider what happens when Jesus teaches us to pray. When Jesus teaches us to pray. And uh, I've got a short answer for you. It's got three short points, and I'll give them to you straight off the bat before we start to unpack them. But essentially, when Jesus teaches us to pray, we learn that we have a Father, that God is our Father, and that has massive implications for our lives. We also learn that God, our Father, is great. That God, our Father, is great. And thirdly, we learn that God, our Father, is good. So what happens when Jesus teaches us to pray? We learn that we have a Father in heaven. We learn that our Father is great. And we learn that our Father is good. And for the rest of this morning, I'll unpack that a little bit. And I want to draw from Matthew chapter 6, just the five verses from that chapter. Uh, you know this well. Most of you would have grown up with this or in school or Sunday school or church or whatever the case may be. But I want to look for some fresh perspectives this morning and uh, basically preach through this kind of line by line. But let's start by reading it together. And uh, if you're at home, hopefully you have a Bible ready or perhaps you'll just check it out on the screen. But uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we read this together as a church this morning? If you're ready, steady, go. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive that's it. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So, what do we learn from Jesus as he teaches us to pray? We start with our Father. That is where it all begins. Everything that Jesus taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, everything that is distinctly Christian can be summed up in the fatherhood, the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. It is such an astounding reality that it is hard for us to fully get our heads around it, hard for us to fully comprehend it. It assaults the way that we think about our identity. It confronts our fears and discouragements. It exposes our neediness, dare I say, our addiction to, for, for the approval of others. 
It is the most life-changing, life-altering, life-giving grace gift of Jesus. You can do no better than to remind yourself every morning that the one who has created everything, the one who is in control of everything, is by grace your Father. And He thinks about you with faithful fatherly love. And He acts towards you with a giving, providing, instructing, forgiving love of a perfect Father. He is always with you. His hand is always upon your life. He watches over us all the time. Our Father, He lifts our burdens and He lightens our load. God, Savior, Friend, Father, folks, we have a Father in heaven. Can we just give a collective sigh of relief this morning that we have a Father? And our Father is like no other. But secondly, we learn not only do we have a Father in heaven, but that our Father is great. Let me read these two verses to us again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And from these two verses, I want to draw on four aspects of God's greatness. Stay with me. Four aspects of God's greatness. Let's look at that phrase, in heaven. As we pray it, we remind ourselves that God is great because He is a transcendent God. He is a transcendent God. That face in heaven speaks of God's transcendency. And our definition for transcendence is everything that sits outside of space and matter and time. Outside of the created order, which is an awesome thing. It's an awesome thought because the created order is marked by time and space. And God transcends time. The theologians tell us, that when, when God steps into time, He reveals Himself, yet for God, all time is one eternal moment. And God has access to all time. He outlasts time as we know it. The book of Hebrews tells us that God's years will never end. And so when we think of God's transcendence, we do not look at ourselves. We look up to a transcendent God and we admit that there's so much about Him that you and I will never figure out. In heaven, a transcendent God. And we look at the phrase, hallowed be your name. And as we pray it this morning, we remind ourselves that God is great because He is a holy God. The root word for allowed is Holy, it means holy. It means when we say, hallowed be your name, it says we want the world to know, God, that you are holy. Your holiness speaks of moral perfection and purity. It also speaks of a uniqueness. 1 Samuel 2 says, there is no one like the, world, like the Lord. In a world that is morally corrupt, God our Father is an uncorrupted one. He is one of a kind. And his purity and his perfection and his uniqueness 
should cause us to marvel in Him. We should, in Paul Tripp's words, become awestruck where we live our lives in the awe and wonder of God. We sang about that this morning. That is our deepest desire. Our deepest desire is to be fulfilled by our Creator. We have a longing to see Him in all His splendor, all His awe and wonder. I wonder this morning if some of us as intentionally or unintentionally began to substitute God with other things. Things that are good. Things that we don't have to frown upon. Things that are God-ordained. Family, careers, marriages. These are good things, but they will never, ever satisfy the deepest longing of our souls. When God created us, He deserved that for himself. And so the only way you and I can be fulfilled, can have our souls satisfied, deeply satisfied, is to be in awe and wonder of a holy God. Perfect, pure, unique. Tim Keller says that an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give us. My friends, have we begun to do that? Have we begun to look at other things and hoping that they will satisfy us? Let's be awestruck again. Let's stand in awe and wonder as we worship this morning so beautifully. But let's not reserve that for 20 or 30 minutes in church once a week. Let's live lives that are marked as people that are awestruck by the wonder and the splendor of our Father. And we look at this phrase, your kingdom come, and as we pray it, we remind ourselves that God is great because He is a sovereign God. He reigns over everything. This morning, he reigns over creation, including us. I need to remind you that you and I are not sovereign, but God is. And so the base for Christian living, our identity is not found in coming here for an hour on a Sunday. Our identity is found in God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. We are not. And so we can find rest in the knowledge that in every situation, listen carefully this morning, every situation, every circumstance, every relationship, every place that you find yourself, you can find rest that your life is in the good hands of God. I wouldn't want to live my life anywhere else but in the safe hands of God. Again, have you began to substitute the safest hands in the world, in the universe that holds your life if we began to substitute it with other things, lesser gods. God is sovereign, folks. We are not. That's the basis of our lives. And this is good news that we can find rest in the wise and careful hands of God. This is where we want to place our lives afresh this morning. And then we look at this phrase, your will be done. As we pray it, we remind ourselves that God is a powerful God. 
It is by His power that He created the world. It is by His power that Jesus was raised from the dead. It is by His power that you and I are made strong when we are weak. The Bible is not a collection of superhuman stories. It is one story of a year of redeemer who transforms us and gives us courage when we are weak. Walk with me through the scriptures a little bit this morning as, as we see this play itself out. Moses wasn't a natural born leader. He begged God to find somebody else for the task ahead. And yet, there was no greater prophet than him. How did it happen? God transformed him by his power. Joshua was scared to death when God called him to take the promised land. God gave him courage and the rest is history. Gideon was convinced that God had the wrong address, that he didn't really mean to call Gideon to fight the Midianites. Yet, by God's power, the victory was won. Samson forsook his calling for the love of a deceitful woman, and yet God gave him the power to bring down the temple of Dagon. David was, was the least likely son of Jesse. God gave him the courage to lead the nation. Elijah, in a moment of madness, wanted to take his own life, and God gave him the courage to not only recover, but to do great things in his power. Esther wasn't a typical hero. She was a beauty queen, one of the most desirable women in Harem, and seemingly not too zealous for the law, and again, not a, not a natural-born leader. But Esther did great things with courage to save a nation. Mary, the mother of Jesus, would not have wanted to grow up as an unwed mother, and yet when the angel appeared with the good news, she praised God, and she did everything she could to protect him when danger came to Jesus. Peter was so fearful that he denied Jesus three times and yet he stood before the Sandrine and says, you can do whatever you want to. I will not stop preaching the gospel. My friends, how did that happen? It is by the transforming power of God. Paul was the greatest persecutor of Christians and he became the most elegant spokesman of the gospel. How? Not by a superhero. superhero but by the transforming power of God. You and I this morning, we have to realize that these are not stories that's reserved for the Bible. It is for all of us as we sit here this morning. These are transforming power that we can access. And God will change us. If you lack anything this morning, He will change us. Many of us in this room, I guess, if we give you the opportunity, we'll be able to come and grab this mic from me and say, I want to tell everybody about the power of God that has changed my life. We have a, a couple with us in Agari, in our small group. And uh, Jono's sister, Tanya, two days before she gave birth to little daughter, Gracie, was diagnosed with cancer. And... Most of you that family or friends in that space, the cancer space, knows that it's a journey of ups and downs, right? And uh, lots and lots of people all over the world prayed for her. And initial treatment started, and that didn't go very well. And, you know, it was just, it was just a tough, tough journey. And then eventually they came to the point where the doctors told Tanya that the only way out would be for her to have a bone marrow transplant. 
And so the, the medical team began to do all the preparations for such an operation to try and find the right match and, and everything that goes with it. And Tanya was weak. And we prayed. And then when it came to the time and Jono flew out to Australia where she lives to go and see her before she goes for the operation to encourage her. She went for one final checkup with the doctors. And what did the doctors say? You no longer need an operation. There's no trace of cancer. You are in full remission. Now, I don't know how that story is going to end. None of us know. Only God knows. But my friends, when we are weak, our lives can be transformed by the power of God. I want us to own this truth this morning. And so what do we have so far? We have that God is great because He is a transcendent God. He is in heaven. He is holy. He is sovereign. And He is powerful. So, stay with me. We're only halfway. Let's look at the next few verses to talk about God's goodness. Not only is God our Father, not only is God great, but the God is also good. Verse 11, it says, Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When we look at this phrase, give us, when we pray it, we remind ourselves that God is good because He is a providing God. God is very wealthy. He does not have a scarcity mentality. He is a source of abundance. He is generous. It doesn't mean that He's going to give you what you want. He will give you what you need. Sometimes at the 11th hour. But we can be confident in God's provision even when he doesn't seem to be providing. Paul says he will meet all our needs so that in every situation you and I can be content. Isn't that an incredible thought? That we can go through life content because God will provide for our needs. God takes care of the most mundane needs of our lives. And my friends, independency, self-sufficiency is an illusion. It cannot work. You can be the most ardent atheist in this room this morning. You are dependent on God for your next breath. Self-sufficiency is a lie. And so what do we do? As we pray this, we look up to our provider and we thank him. And we live content lives. Not always looking for the next best thing. But God, what you've given me. God, you know my needs. I've had to learn this truth that God knows better what I need than what I know. And so I trust him. And then we look at this phrase, forgive us. As we pray it, we remind ourselves that God is a good God because he's a gracious God. He forgives our sins. Even when we mess up, he forgives our sins and blesses us anyway. How? All of this happens through the cross. That Jesus took our sins to the cross. That's the basis of our forgiveness this morning. Not our moral performance. Not how many times we come to church. Not how we pray. None of that counts. We only forgive him because of the cross. 
God's graciousness poured out on rebels like you and I. Forgiveness is only possible when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. You say, Christo, how, how gracious is this Jesus? Well, he tells a story about a father and a prodigal son. The son takes his inheritance and he goes walk about and he lives it up with wild parties and substance abuse and, and just completely ruins his life. And then at a point he comes back. And what happens when he comes back? How does he find his father? Frowning at him? Questioning him? Disciplining him? No, no. He founds his father with his arms open, welcoming him. That's us. That's the magnificence of the grace that's been showered on our lives. We could never earn this. God is good because he's gracious, because he forgives our sins. You and I can never earn this. This is a gift. Let's celebrate this gift. God is good because he's gracious. Then we look at this phrase, lead us. As we pray it, we remind ourselves that God is good because he's a guiding God. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He shows us the best way. He speaks to us through his scriptures. He speaks to us through his spirit. He guides us. He opens and closes doors. I'm not saying that he's going to make decisions for you. Although sometimes God will give us a command directly. That could happen. But generally what happens is we ask for wisdom from this guiding God. God, won't you guide me in this big decision of my life? Won't you guide me as I seek new employment? Would you guide me as I move from country to country? Would you guide me as I raise my children? God is a guiding God. And his guidance brings security. That's what I want us to see this morning, is that the one who is the ultimate authority, the one who is in control of everything, the transcendent God in heaven, is the one who knows what's best for me. God knows better what's best for me than what I know what is best for me. And I had to learn this in a hard way. God had to wrestle me to the ground for me to own this truth. Because I was convinced that my version of life was better than God's version of life for me. And Elisa and I had a season where we had an epic business failure. We made all the mistakes. If we had to write a book about how to mess up a business, it would just be an, a bestseller. We, we made just about every mistake. And as a young Christian at this time, as our lives, everything around us that we, that we thought was our security, as everything began to unravel, and I was on my knees and say, God, won't you fix this? Won't you bring us more customers? Won't you make us profitable? Won't you help us? And God, in great wisdom, could have done it like that. He could have changed things overnight. But he was more committed to my holiness than my happiness. And so he didn't give us a quick fix out. He didn't bail us out. But I tell you what, I would never want it the other way. Because for seasons, he worked in my heart until I could own this 
God, my life in your hands, in your guiding hands, is the best place I can find myself. I can say that with confidence, with boldness, with surety. If you're looking for guidance this morning, step back. Ask God for wisdom by all means. But allow Him to be the ultimate authority in your life. He knows better what's best for you than you, than you know yourself. There's a God-originated, God-communicated set of boundaries. And our loving Father suggests that we live within those boundaries. That is our sweet spot, folks. Don't drift beyond them. And then we look at this phrase, this phrase, deliver us. As we pray it, we remind ourselves that God is good because He is a delivering God. In scriptures, three ways that God delivers us. Sometimes He just shields us from trouble altogether, right? He protects us. Nothing bad happens. God's protection. God's shielding us from trouble. Sometimes we are in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a trial, and God puts an end to that. That could happen. That has happened. Think about Jesus and his disciples in a boat on the storm. They're freaking out because the storm is taken. One word. Instantly. Jesus puts an end to the storm. Just like that. Instant deliverance. But my friends, most of the time, most of the time, God doesn't just put an end to the trial, but he stands in the trial with us. You think of Paul's life. Uh, he describes it as follows. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side. Have you woken up in the morning feeling hard-pressed on every side lately? But not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Here is a man who has experienced the delivering power of God. Not by taking the storm away, not by taking the trial away, but by fortifying him in the trial. You hear that afresh this morning? And no matter how unpredictable your life seems to be, no matter how out of control your life seems to be, God is still reigning and He will continue to reign till we meet again. Doesn't mean that you and I will not experience some hurt and some pain. But it does mean that there's nothing that you are going through that God can't intervene can't step into, can't be with you, can't change altogether. He is good because he is a delivering God. And so when it comes for us to consider God's goodness, we see that when we are lacking, he is ready to be our provider. When we've sinned, he is ready to be our grace giver. When we're confused, he is ready to be our guide. And when we're in a trial, he is ready to be our deliverer.
So let me pull this together. This morning you and I can find fresh confidence, boldness, and joy in our Father in heaven. That we have a Father in heaven. Friends, celebrate this truth with me. Not only is it is he our father, but he is a good father. He is a good God. He is in heaven. He is sovereign. He is holy. He is powerful. He provides for us. He guides us. He forgives us. He delivers us. And that's what we learn when Jesus teaches us to pray. And so, you may ask, how do I start this relationship? What you're saying this morning makes so much sense to me. But how do I get to know this Father, this God, our Father that you described? Well, three things. Firstly, be reconciled. Be reconciled. Followers of Christ, our lives are not about our perfection. It's not about us getting things together. It's about being forgiven. I used to think that good people make it to heaven. Now I'm convinced that it's forgiven people that makes it to heaven. And so this morning, if you have never asked Jesus to step into your life, I suggest you do that. That's where the relationship will start. Let him forgive you for your sins. and You start a new life with him. Secondly, begin to steep your life in the Scriptures. Read God's Word because what will happen is step by step, some of the stuff that you may have heard from other people or some half-truths or just some false perceptions, that will fade. The power of God's Word will break through into your life. That I can guarantee you. Read this book and then begin to pray. Begin to pray. That's how we get to know God, is when we speak to Him. When we speak to Him. When I, when I married Elise uh, 34 years ago, I didn't just get to know her by asking other people what they thought of her. I got to know her by speaking to her. And our relationship with God is no different. God wants us to speak to Him. And so come to Him tomorrow morning with simple prayers, maybe based on what you've heard this morning. And Thank Him again that, that He is sovereign, that He's holy, that He's powerful, that He's forgiving, that He's providing. Begin the conversation. And you'll be amazed how often God speaks back to us as we live our lives in the sweet spot of knowing that He's the only one who can truly, truly satisfy us.